From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig speed internet or other popular plans. With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's time once again for another episode of Atlanta Legal Experts Radio. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host, Emily Rowell. Good morning and welcome to another exciting episode of Atlanta Legal Experts Radio. I am your host, Emily Rowell with Peachtree Offices. I have Rich Casanova here with me working in background foreground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm right here uh, just trying to stay out of the fog this morning. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, you have uh, kind of a spotlight episode here today on... um, uh, a specific firm and some sub- subject matter experts. And yes, we actually have Taylor English in the house. Today. Yeah. All right. A round yeah. of applause for those folks. Yeah. <laughs> They've been here before. At least uh, a couple of people have been. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We, but we're highlighting, definitely spotlighting Taylor English and their higher education practice. Um, so we're going to be focusing on that today. First, I'd like to mention my sponsors. We have three A From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Practice management, helping attorneys build, start and build their practice. Uh, we have Peachtree Offices, helping attorneys establish their practice in the Atlanta area. And we have Atlanta's own John Marshall Law School. And again, you can go to atlantalegalexperts.com. As you can every week to see all these links to all of our sponsors, and you'll also see a summary of our show today on there in in a little bit. So, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to my guests. Good morning. And this morning, I have Deborah Osford. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. We have Christina Moore. Good morning. And we have Amy Weaver. Weber. Weber. (laughs) Thank you. I knew that. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll have Deb Beecham with my Advo- Advocacy Center, say that five times fast, joining us in the studio in just a little bit. So I will go ahead and start um, just to talk a little bit about Taylor English first. All right. Um, my name is Amy Weber, and I'm a partner with Taylor English Duma in Atlanta. Uh, we are a pro-business firm. We have 120 lawyers. We have um, a wide spectrum of abilities and, and capabilities at our firm from corporate transactional work all the way through litigation. And the practice we're here to talk about today is our higher education practice. Um, the higher education um, law is, is generally like most businesses. You have contracts you have to enter into. You have litigation. So our expertise um, just generally as a pro-business firm really um, combines nicely with a higher education practice. And we are also a firm that tries very hard to um, you know, be mindful of budgets, and just like every other business, we understand that you have, you know, in a higher education setting, you have boards of, of um, regents that you have to be responsible to. So we are able to, you know, um, build a practice in a way and help our higher education clients mindful of also that the costs are always, um, you know, forefront of any legal expert you're going to hire for your legal matter. Sure, sure. So it sounds like even though it is a big firm, you still focus on, you know, the individual, you know, every little small part of 
a big business. That's right. And, and again, we want to be able to um, make our clients' budgets um, something that's always at the forefront of litigation or even a transaction because, as you know, sometimes legal costs can really skyrocket Go through the before roof. you know it. Right. And we also we want to be mindful and partner with our clients um, so that they can get what they want um, at a reasonable cost. Thank you. You did really well. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, how long have you been with, and this is Amy Weber we're speaking with, how long have you been with Taylor English? I've been with Taylor English for about um, six years. Wow. Again, um, business litigation. Mm-hmm. And I also do some um, commercial work with um, creditor rights and a little bit of bankruptcy. But again, we also do this higher ed, which is what we're here to talk about today. It's a great firm. Great people here to talk with me about it today. And you graduated from Mercer University? Mercer Law School, right, in 1999. I'm a California girl, so I'm not a, a, a Georgia native, but I think I fit right in in the Atlanta market. Sure. <laughs> it's not hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. And we also have Christina Moore with us. Good morning. Good morning. And tell me a little bit more about you with and your practice with Taylor English. Um, I'm in the uh, resort practice group, and it's uh, focused on you know real estate and resort and the travel industry. But then I also have the component of the higher ed, which deals with investigations, and then also um, the regulatory aspect, you know, which uh, crosses the border of any I think practice area. Sure. Um, which I think is is a nice way to you know, make all the practice areas and, and work with a lot of people, which mm-hmm. is um, very nice. And how long have you been with Taylor English? I think I've been there about four years. Okay. So. Good. And you graduated from Loyola? Yes. University? I, yep. I'm also not an Atlanta, Atlanta native. I was in uh, Chicago for undergrad and for law school. And I also played soccer up there. So oh, fun. I like uh, the Title IX as it relates to soccer. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. And last but not least, we have Deborah Osborne. I hope I said that right. Yes, that is. Okay, good. (laughs) And you've been with Taylor English for how long? For five years. Fantastic. And you focus on the higher education, is that right? I focus on youth-serving organizations, which covers both higher ed and then the K-12 summer camps, daycare centers, um, that sort of thing. Um, like everyone else here, I, I sort of overlap that with um, the other half of my practices, political organizations, which this is a very fun time of year to be sure. working with those groups. But I bet. I bet. Absolutely. And you've been you've spent 30 years working with educational and social services yes. organizations. I started out after I graduated from uh, college. I was a social worker before I went to law school. And then um, while I was in law school, I did volunteer work, and then after I got out of law school, while I was I was in um, private practice for a while, but I was a foster parent, um, and also still a volunteer with youth organizations, and then uh, spent seven years as a federal prosecutor, uh, prosecuting wow. uh, sex crimes, child abuse crimes, and then when I came back to private practice, I just stayed involved. I'm, sure. I'm on the board of a couple of organizations here. Um, in Atlanta and then in Cherokee County where I live. Gotcha. Ooh, did it take a while to get here this morning? Or? So, oh, I left at 6 o'clock. Got here at 7.15. That's sort Made of sure. routine for Georgia 400. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, we're so glad that you're here, and it sounds like everybody's going to have a lot of good things. And, you know, 
uh, experience to talk about today on the show. So the topic for today is the higher education. Um, we will be kind of focusing on the K-12, K through 12 as well. Um, but the higher education world and everything that surrounds it and, um, you know, everything that um, some, some of the hot topics that are out there today we'll definitely talk about. And again, just to remind our listeners, you're listening to Atlanta Legal Experts Radio, and you can find us all over social media, and make sure you hashtag AL Radio. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> we got it. That's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start, um, and this is for, um, I'll start with Deborah. Um, how does your legal and life experience inform your work on internal investigations? Well, that is um, one of the hot topics now in higher ed and, mm-hmm. and actually K-12 is um, the Title IX requirements mm-hmm. because, um, as Amy and Christina can, can explain more in depth about um, what Title IX requires, but one of the things that we offer is um, doing investigations into sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination kind of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the... the um, U.S. Department of Education has, in the last five years, um, come out with new guidance about what schools are expected to do in dealing with those. And for many years, the default position was just turn it over to law enforcement and let law enforcement handle it. But um, the Department of Education in um, the last uh, five to eight years has made very clear that they expect schools to do their own internal investigation Mm. and to um, start uh, having um, not only investigations but also consequences if if some sort of discrimination is found. Um, So I go back to my experience with when I was a social worker dealing with child abuse cases Mm -hmm. and um, as a prosecutor learning how to um, investigate these cases because there's... It, it, it's not like um, these kind of cases are not like burglaries or, or car thefts where um, you just go in and, and get just the facts. With with traumatized victims, you have to um, be very careful um, and very um, understanding in getting the facts. But at the same time, as I learned watching in child abuse cases, the, the pendulum swung. Um, I when I first started, I was sort of at the tail end of the thought that it, it never happens. We, we just don't have child abuse. Right. Then the pendulum swung to it happens all the times and kids don't lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we discovered kids do lie. Um, adults misunderstand. Mm-hmm. There's, so now the pendulum has swung back to much more of a balanced model. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're seeing that same thing in Title IX. We've gone from let the law enforcement handle it to I think where we are now is um, we have to deal with it and we have to believe the victim. And I think it's going to swing back to sometimes the victim misunderstands, sometimes they have a vendetta. There's a balance There's there. always a balance. Right. A very thin line, it seems like. Right. And you, and you have to be very sensitive of both possibilities while you're doing the investigation. Sure. That's got to be difficult. So it, it is. Um, and that's why it takes it takes some life experience as well as legal experience in sure. order to be able to, to um, handle that balance. So can you, one of you, explain a little more about Title IX, exactly what that is? Because that's kind of what we're wanting to focus on today. Sure, sure. Um, this is Amy Weber. So Title IX is a regulation that applies 
and it prohibits discrimination based on sex. And as it relates to higher education, um, in the higher education context, it would prohibit any um, sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, forms of sexual misconduct. This would also include um, dating violence, stalking, cyber stalking. So what the schools are trying to do is create an environment for our, um, for our young people in school that is safe and that's welcoming and that's not non-threatening as it relates to their sure. ability to learn. And so anytime a student um, raises an allegation that they have been a victim of any form of this discrimination, then the schools are required to investigate that claim. And now, would this be student to student as well? Yep, it can be student and to student. And not just like staff to student. Right. Right, it can be both. And um, it, also, it also can be staff and staff. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, you know, someone who's in a position of higher authority on someone who's in, you know, a, a lesser authoritarian right authoritative position. Sure. So that's really the burden that's happened with the schools over the past five years is that they've been mandated but by the Department of Education to investigate. And there's been so many changes that it's hard for the schools to keep up with what is the right protocol to put in place, mm. the right policy to implement. And that's where we have the expertise to, to guide our clients as to what is the latest that's put out by um, OCR, the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education. And we're trying to balance um, you know, it's, it's very hard for schools because there's a lot of personnel that goes into doing these investigations. Um, one of the benefits that our firm can provide is doing these investigations that are neutral. And so you have a third party mm-hmm. who's not employed by the school. Well, we're, sure. empo- we're we are clients, but we're not um, an employee of the school. Right. You're non-biased. Right. And, um, you know, we, we, we don't know any of the parties involved. And I can see why they would want the school to do their own investigation because they know people a little bit better than just you know police officer coming in right not knowing anything and, and so to make sure that it we're clear that the um the police still have to investigate if mm-hmm, the sure. student claims that there's been a crime that's committed mm-hmm. but the schools continues to have an obligation to investigate too so you have sometimes investigations which are going on in tandem sure sure and having that Christine. independent investigator um where we would come in also allows you the investigator doesn't the school has interests you know they don't want to have outrageous numbers of incidents but we're able to separate ourselves from the school and at the same time give the students something that um they don't feel like the school is trying to sway them one way or the other so we're able to come in and and be that balance between the school and the student which oftentimes makes a student feel more comfortable sure sure it's hard yeah i i I hate that all this has to happen you know there's it but yeah. it seems like it's you know as it's a, just a hot topic it's 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 almost rampant right and you read a lot about it in the papers and i think that i think there's two reasons one i think that the idea or or the definition of sexual assault is very broad and what may have happened 20 years ago maybe someone would not have thought that it was an actionable situation true where they needed to seek help Right. Now there's been so much training and so much information mm-hmm. that w- it's really raising awareness, which is a good thing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And you've got that pendulum that Deb was talking about earlier where, you know, um, back in the day, I'll say, um, you know, this wasn't happening on college campuses. And now it's swinging the other way. This yes means yes, where you have to have this affirm- affirmative consent between two individuals, which really makes uh, almost... Um, 
a consensual relationship uncomfortable. And so the schools are trying to balance the pendulum and at the same time uh, the legal ground that is involved. Yeah. Now tell me, what legal trends do you see that schools need to pay attention to? Well, one of the biggest issues that we see is this idea of due process. And schools, when they're doing investigation, are not required to administer due process as the term is traditionally defined in courts. So they're trying to strike a balance between um, getting to the truth mm -hmm. and appropriately sanctioning the student without harming either student permanently. And it, that's, that's, it's very difficult. There are s several lawsuits that, um, quite a few lawsuits that, ha that have been filed. It's actually um, a growth industry for lawyers <laughs> at this point, is uh, bringing lawsuits um, against the schools by either a, a, a victim who feels like they've not been taken care of or um, a, someone who's been found um, responsible for being a perpetrator and they feel like they were treated unfairly. Mm -hmm. um, and the um, due process claims are actually the ones that are getting the most traction right now. If the school doesn't allow some sort of um, discussion um, and, and pushback and hearing an opportunity for a defense by the perpetrator, or um, on the other hand, doesn't give um, the, uh, the, the, the person who's claiming to be a victim, doesn't give them some sort of the same rights. It, it's difficult for the schools because we have been so used to just handing it off to law enforcement and following that law enforcement model. Mm -hmm. But really what we have here is sort of a civil model um, in the sense of two parties fighting it out. It's just instead of fighting it out in courts, they're fighting it out in the campus adjudication process. But you still have but there's still a lot at stake. There's a lot of property at stake in education and, and mm -hmm. future employment and those kind of things. Um, so again, you have to be very careful and, and walk the balance between um, giving the, the perpetrator all of the opportunities to, to defend themselves and prove their innocence, but at the same time being sensitive to the person who, who um, claims to have been traumatized. Another issue that's come up too, or, or that's an ongoing discussion, is this, the standard of proof that's applied generally by these hearing panels and boards. And the standard of proof is preponderance of the evidence, which is basically um, you know, just a little bit over 50%. So when you're involved in these processes, students think that there has to be an ab absolute proof or, or not. Otherwise, they won't be, you know, you know, brought up on a violation or won't be sanctioned. But it's, you know, just a little bit over 50%. Hmm. So that's where schools are fighting um, when there's a sanction that's applied. A student doesn't think it, it was fairly applied. But all of the codes that are in place right now in higher ed just as a preponderance of the evidence standard. So, again, it's like what Debbie was talking about, that it's, uh, you know, we're trying to straddle, you know, an important important time in people's lives right. applying um, a process that is not like a court process but can impact students um, for the rest of their life. And we were going to talk a little bit more about the early childhood education as well. I mean, every part of this is during a kid's most right. important time mm -hmm. in their life. Right. So Title IX does apply through K through 12. And this idea of investigation hasn't gotten a lot of traction in the K through 12 arena because the, the, the incidents are fewer. 
Sure. However, um, I, I recall a story not too long ago of a child that was um, complained of, you know, a sexual assault in an elementary school. Mm. And I saw it on Facebook, and the parent said, I'm kind of getting shut out by the school. And what she really needed was someone to guide her through this process, which right. is what, what we can do. And Deb can speak more to the K-12. through it, It's a, a, an issue in K-12. through As with all of these things, it's hard to know sometimes whether it actually is a, a, a sexual harassment or sexual assault or um, whether it's um, overprotective, uh, I call them hypervigilant parents and school teachers. Um, you know, w- when you have a, a, a seven-year-old boy who kisses a girl on the cheek on the playground, it, it, it's developmentally appropriate. It's mm-hmm. not that unusual, but unfortunately our system looks at that and says, ah, sexual assault, sexual abuse. And so schools face these issues of, of um, you know, I- is the girl traumatized? How do we deal with that? How do we deal with um, the boy without further traumatizing them? Um, the last thing you want to do is put an unfair label on a child. Right. So in elementary school, you've got all of those issues. In high school, um, it, it, it can be a little... Um, a little more clear because by high school they're supposed to have learned a whole right. lot more socially <laughs> acceptable <laughs> procedures. What is and what's not. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, now with special needs students, it, you you can uh. end up back with the same. Um, how did they interpret it? Did they know? How do you explain to them that unwelcome is unwelcome? Right, um, and, right. And but Title IX applies again in K twelve context just like it does. Um, the other thing that happens with K-12 is we have mandated reporter responsibilities, which is any time a child under 18 um, has been abused or, or you have reason to suspect that they may have been abused, you have to report it to law enforcement. Um, actually, colleges have that obligation, too. It's just so very few of their students are under 18. Sure. Sure. Well, I'm going to welcome Deb Beecham to Hi. the studio. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be back. And I was excited when Emily told me you were going to be guest. And, you know, this is, um, I, I wor- work with a lot of professionals advocating for families and children. So um, I've been doing a series with Ashley Wilcott. You mm-hmm. introduced me to Emily. So, um, so I'm excited to hear that Taylor English has this level of expertise in this arena. I didn't realize that. Well, I'm, we're not very good at, at advertising this, so <laughs> we're working on that's that. That's why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. And one of the things I wanted to add, too, that a, a component of the Title IX and this whole idea or this whole progression of the development of this area is, is training. And um, so the school is now required to have extensive training for their students. It's much different than when I was in college. Um, we didn't have any training, and now there's lots of training. Um, I was at a conference recently, and they were talking about the training that the students undergo when they, these kids come in when they're 18, first time away from school, and we're talking about appropriate behavior, appropriate boundaries. Um, and one of the things that came up is that we're not doing enough training at the you know, lower level, that this is the training that really should start, a conversation should start occurring in middle school, mm-hmm. where we talk about boundaries and what's appropriate and what's not. And, and Deb, I don't know, have you had any, had any experience with, with requests for clients for training um, to these sorts of issues? It comes up under the bullying um, rubric most of the time. That is um, the uh, uh, 
hot issue with mm-hmm. K-12 and with youth organizations. And um, again, there's a lot out there that, that um, you, you have you have kids. My granddaughter told me one morning to quit bullying her. Um, and I said, I'm sorry, how am I bullying you? <laughs> well, you, you told me this shirt and these pants don't look good together and that hurts my feelings. <laughs> So, so, so uh, well, you take kids, th- they take right. it to the extreme. Well, it's just the, that's the kids, way they're hearing everything right, so yeah. bad. Kids think things very concretely, and mm-hmm. and they are taught don't be a bully. They don't really know what that means. Sure. Um, and so I, again, I think the pendulum's going to swing back. CDC has a, a, an excellent um, uh, definition of what bullying is, and it's it's. It involves power imbalance. It involves sustained behavior. It's not just not inviting someone to a birthday party. <laughs> um, so th- there is a lot of that that is happening. It's not so much, again, because you've got younger kids. You don't. This has always been the problem with with teaching kids about good touch, bad touch, all of these um, preventive things about sexual abuse. You don't want to sexualize them too early because they don't really understand. Right. And and you can tell them all this stuff, but they're not developmentally capable of acting right. on it. Right. I think more parents need the education about, you know, what's appropriate to talk about at what stage, and you exactly. know, we, we we have good resources available for that. Great books, and and we had um, author Tammy Kennedy on um, a while back. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but her books are age appropriate for kids who have been exposed. So it's a, you know, that's another good set of resources for parents. With that, yes. Um, again, in high school, um, it, the schools have not done so much about boundaries. They've done a whole lot more about um, sex education and, and kids making wise choices when it comes to sex, but they have done very little about boundaries mm-hmm. and what's acceptable Which and what's so not. In that age, it's so important, I think, to teach that, the boundaries, yeah. more so than what to use, you know, or what right. not to do, or, you know. Exactly. And it's very difficult in our society because if you look, I, I joke about the um, any movie you go to, um, I, I mean, if, if we flagged all of the things that would violate oh, yeah. a yes means yes, Protocol, then you would have no romance movies out of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, another issue too is when you have these young students that go off to college that are, you know, exposed to all kinds of different situations they had at home, including alcohol. It just kind of fuels the fire for, you know, kind of an epidemic that's just sort of rampant that these kids don't, um, they have new burdens placed on them. Mm-hmm. There's alcohol involved. And it just is, it's a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. So what Title IX, I think, um, strives to do is to get an education and to make kids aware so that they don't get themselves in situations, or if they do get themselves in situations, that they know how to get out of it. And mm-hmm. the schools are actually very good at um, imp- detailing policies and procedures um, so that this, if they read it, the students will be very <laughs> aware of what constitutes um, a violation and then what happen and I know Christina has done a lot of work with schools um, looking into policies and procedures that the schools are are, are putting in place to try to um, balance all of these competing issues right and that's something very important the policies because the legal um, world is always changing they need to 
constantly, you can't just finish a policy and say, great, that's going to be in place for five years. It's mm. something you really have to, one, make available to your students so they can understand what the, de- you know, the key definitions are and what, what, you know, what constitutes an assault or those kind of things. And then also the schools have to be tasked with constantly updating and revising and making it not just legally compliant, but easy to read from a student perspective who sure. isn't a legal expert, um, easy to find. E- these are all things that relate to your policy that you have to just almost do uh, probably every six months. You know, is this good? Is this something we need to change? Is this something we need to get someone involved to look at and make sure we're current and, e- and easy to read? And, um, this, and this is something that the, that the Office of Civil Rights actually demands of schools, that they have to have policies and procedures in place. Sure. Which... Um, give step-by-step information to the students what's acceptable what's not and what's going to happen if there's a violation and having those in place it's not just beneficial to the students but also the schools can in a sense stay out of trouble with the office of um, civil rights if it's in place and it's good that keeps them you know out of the eyes of Mm -hmm. the office Mm -hmm. you know in good standing almost can I ask a question? We we talked about training the staff. Do we have do are there programs you put in place for the students? Yes. Like opportunities for them to learn? Yes. All students have to go through a training um, at usually when school starts and there's a training that also occurs um, at the end like spring semester. And then a lot of the fraternities and sororities and all their social groups on campus are also doing training. So there's a lot of um, highlighting of this area and the students are I mean, some of them will probably complain it's too much, Mm. um, but I think that, you know, to err on the side of caution, more is better. Yeah, So much different than when I went to school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, as somebody who has two middle schoolers going through high school, that gives me a little more peace of mind that by the time they get to college, these policies will have been adapted a little bit more. And mm-hmm. and I, I'm, that was my question is, you know, when and where are the students getting the information and are they accountable for knowing it? Do they have to sign something saying, I have sat through this class, I have read, and I mm-hmm. do understand? Yes. So generally what's going to happen is when they have an orientation, they're going to go through a couple processes. And then they'll usually have to watch an online video and they're going to have to check a box, say they say that they watched it. And all of these statistics are reported back um, by the school to the Office of Civil Rights. And this is part of the, the compliance um, proof that the school gives to the Office of Civil Rights that they are following the guidelines set forth in Title IX for education. Okay. Um, because the schools are under an obligation to educate us to this issue. Yeah, it sounds like we do have the pendulum going pretty hard in that direction, but it also sounds necessary. I don't have a problem with that. Well, I, I think... I, you know, it's just a balance because yeah. what's happening is that I think there's a rush to judgment. Right. And some of these students that are respondents perhaps may not be getting a fair um, a fair opportunity to explain. Right. But this is what we talked about earlier with due process and mm-hmm. also the proponents of the evidence standard. It's just different in schools. And, yeah. I, and what's most important is I think if you're a parent, you need to understand so your child knows when they go to school, it's not a court. I was explaining to my middle schooler yesterday when something happened in class. I said, Mm. you don't get due process. You know, they're not interested in what you know. (laughs) You know, they're interested in what they observed. And I think the students think that they have all these rights, but they 
they don't when it comes to some of these processes. Right. They just mm. need to be aware. So you learn learn how to manage your emotions and guide your behavior accordingly. And so if you know where the boundaries are, then. And well. as a high schooler, that's really easy to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <No>. Exactly. <laughs> no well, problem. and it, it's. I, I think I think the pendulum will eventually swing back because all of these rules that we have now, um, I, I was joking about the Hollywood romance movies, but it, it's not the way that human relationships work. Very, very few human relationships require explicit discussion of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of us who are in relationships know there's a whole lot of... of unspoken understanding that that goes on mm -hmm. um and and then the due process issue yes schools want to stay out of trouble uh, from the office of civil rights but on the other hand they don't want to get sued for lack of due process um a, a, another area that is moving really quickly um also is um the free speech area which is, that's another potential lawsuit that's that schools have to worry about um, because the Office of Civil Rights and, and Christina and, and Amy can explain the the, the breadth of the um, definition of sexual assault includes verbal assaults, uh -huh. which gets into hate speech and speech codes. But for um, government schools, you have First Amendment free speech, which says people have an absolute right to say obnoxious things to each other. And it's it's a violation of law to penalize people for saying obnoxious things. You can stop them from saying dangerous things, mm -hmm. but you can't stop them from saying obnoxious things. So that is another um, one of those issues that schools have to uh, navigate between a whole lot of competing interests and motivations. Um, Talk about if a school actually has a claim, what are some of the first steps they need to do to deal? Um, if a student files a claim that they think they're a victim that falls under a victim of violence or, or assault that falls under Title IX, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go to the Title IX coordinator at their school. And every school is required to have a Title IX coordinator. And this Title IX coordinator is going to explain the process. They'll do the intake with determination of um, just you know, summary of the facts, find out about the name of the other student, and then interim measures will be put in place depending on um, the nature of the incident. And then after um, that initial intake, then the school begins the investigative process. Well, they'll do, it's just, it's like a fact finding like you do in a mm -hmm. civil lawsuit or a criminal matter. Mm -hmm. And that's the point they need to call us. <laughs> yes, I would say so. <laughs> I would absolutely say so. Um, so they do the fact finding, and the fact finder, um, you know, as we are the neutrals, all we're doing is we're making determination as to whether is there is a violation of Title IX mm -hmm. and the school policy. Um, the normal traditional model is that the fact finder or the investigator makes that determination, and, that, and then the matter is turned back over to the school, to the dean of students, and then there's usually a student hearing board or some sort of hearing board which can be comprised of either faculty or a hybrid of faculty and, and um, students, and then the matter is taken to a hearing, and then there's an adjudication on that hearing, and then there's a, um, an outcome or a sanction if applicable. Got it. Wow. Under that, um, how does the claim get started? The, the schools at the initial training point are going to be informing their students, you know, here's our policy, here's where you go to file a claim, because students 
also have to have the ability to do it anonymously because there's so many aspects of what goes on at these in these incidents that you don't want your name out there or you're not comfortable you're only comfortable doing it anonymously so mm-hmm. the school's going to have you know hopefully a very good you know detailed web website page just focused on this where you can get their policy where you can file a claim where you can do all these things without having to put your hand up in front of everybody at first right. and that's something hopefully the student learns about at the initial part of um, the training when they come into school yeah, the schools um, will, will maintain confidentiality to the extent that they can, and there are other federal laws that would prohibit um, disclosure of student names. Um, so, you know, it's just like every other process. There are so many competing interests. Um, and then, you know, the respondent, you know, he wants to have, he or she wants to have his, you know, their fair opportunity to explain the situation and scenario. So when sanction, interim sanctions are put in place, it can sometimes involve students not coming onto campus except for only for classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also can mean moving children from, moving the students, not children, but moving the students from different dorms if they're uncomfortable. I mean, there's a real emphasis on making sure that the victim um, is not feeling as if they have to be re-traumatized every time they see the, the, the respondent. Especially in such a sensitive issue. Yes. Right, and then you're also having to balance the both students can still get their education so you don't want to re-traumatize but you also don't want to say you're a semester behind because that affects Mm -hmm. the rest of your life and so these are you know kind of big issues that can affect long-term items in your in your personal life and you can see too for a school whose whose main goal is to educate these are very difficult issues that schools face every day is there any education with students in the training about consequences for making false claims yes there are usually okay. student honor code violations that okay. will accompany but again that's that's another process they have to go through so instead of a title nine hearing they'd be going through a student code violation hearing but that does happen unfortunately yeah we see that all through life and <laughs> business yeah, and family court and the duke um, lacrosse case is a very right. obvious right. example that was yeah. not a student there but but those students, um, I think their parents had to mortgage, remortgage their houses in order to pay for the attorneys. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there is a lot at stake. Um, I, I think actually the, the model that law enforcement has developed for dealing with child abuse cases is very informative here because um, whenever a, a, a child um, reports something or whenever there's a mandated report by the school, it goes to specially trained investigators, but it also, you, you pull in the child advocacy centers, which uh, do a wraparound with counseling mm-hmm. and um, help with social services, um, pull in funds for the non-offending parent or options for the non-offending parent. Um, and with that, that wraparound and the way of, of dealing with it, it, it meets the due process requirements, but it also limits how much you're going to re-traumatize the child while you're doing the investigation. So uh, I, I think colleges could learn from that process with, um, and obviously K-12 could, could um, access that process of, of doing the wraparound with counseling and the support and the advocate as the victim is going through the, the uh, 
adjudication process. process. That's a really good point, and I think that's something the public could stand to hear more about how that process actually works, because if you are a parent whose child makes an outcry, you're not prepared for what that process looks like, and you're so busy responding you know, emotionally mm. and out of fear that if you don't understand how the process works, things can break down. Um, but that it is a really good process, and I've seen um, this play out in multiple cases, and they really do a great job. The forensic evaluators and um, the child advocacy centers. That's all. Whenever I have parents calling me with those issues, and we walk them through it, I, I always tell them, call your child advocacy center, and and plug into the the resources they have there, and then we'll start from there. Yeah. Well, and there's also a lot of training that goes on with uh, for investigators. And is to deter is to be able to figure out when a person is responding to questions. Not everybody who's been traumatized responds the same way. Exactly. <laughs> and the way that they might respond mm -hmm. may may believe the investigator to believe nothing happened. You know, because you have, as you know, you have people who are in trauma who may laugh and who may exhibit a range of emotions that has that would be very to to someone who right. wasn't in the process thinks that that's a, that's an odd reaction. Right. So I've gone gone through some training with the um, the Georgia State um, State Patrol, and they are actually very in tune um, on this, these issues. And they too are going through training with respect to how to interview victims. And That's really good to know. Yeah, and the range of emotion that can be displayed, and not to discount any emotion that showed as um, an evidence of of untruth. And there are some statistics out there that state that. It's a very low percentage of people who have not been victimized for them to not tell the truth. It, it's, I think it's between 2 and 8%. Right. It may not be to the extent that they're describing, but something happened. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what I see, too. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time, and this is such a big subject, and just a, um, you know, an hour just goes by so quickly. Um, any, th any final thoughts? <coughs> I don't know. I have a final thought. Um, <laughs> my, uh, the, my final thought is just uh, this is a hot topic, and um, and there's so many different things that come into play that I I think it's important for students, parents, universities, lawyers. I, I think there's so many people that are touched by this that uh, in in different ways that I. I think it's um, we'll something a bunch should be paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts, yeah. and when you're developing a policy, there's a, you know, a, again you have to worry about being sued. You have to worry about losing funding from Department of Education. Mm -hmm. um, Georgia House uh, Committee just recently had hearings on this issue, threatened to pull funding if um, they don't get more due process uh, obligations. Um, Schools in Georgia are now under investigation by the Department, Office of Civil Rights, Department of Education. Um, th th there's a lot at stake, and there's a it, it takes some concentrated effort to navigate all of the potential uh, pitfalls here. And you know, I've I've had a lot of guests, a lot of the guests on here are um, single practice, small practice firms, but I see the importance of having a large firm to be able to go through. I mean. We barely touched on the little, you know, the different subjects and things that we have to be aware of and to have professionals like Taylor English to really go through that with the schools right. is really important. Yeah, and that's what we, you know, we have a, a deep bench 
uh, so that you know dif- these areas can touch constitutional law, civil mm-hmm. law, um, and we pride ourselves on being able to navigate very easily through any legal claim that comes up. And so that we would encourage our clients to be proactive, look at your policies, review your policies. Do you think they're in line? When was the last time they were reviewed? You know, w- what is the latest and greatest from the Office of Civil Rights? And, you know, have, are you, do you have enough training for your staff and for your students? Yeah, so let's talk about Taylor English's contact information. It's probably pretty easy. Yes. <laughs> so we can be found at uh, www.taylorenglish.com. Uh, my name is Amy Weber, and I'm in their business litigation department. You can email me at aweber at taylorenglish.com. And that's W-E-B-E-R. That's right, 1-B. And not Weber. <laughs> <laughs> and not the girl people either. Um, I'm C-M-O-R-E, M-O-O-R-E, at TaylorEnglish.com. And um, just look me up on the website. My last name is Osborne, but it starts with an A. So it's A-U-S-B-U-R-N. And Deb? Yes, um, Deb Beecham. And if you go to MyAdvocateCenter.com, there's a contact form there. And um, usually respond within 24, 48 hours. And... For um, any parents that are listening. Yeah, parents, professionals, legislators. Um, I've been asked to put together a CLE course. Um, so there's there's all kinds of room <laughs> for consulting. <laughs> Big area. But yes. it's great to meet you all and look forward to following up. Thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all your contributions today. This is Emily Rowell with Atlanta Legal Experts Radio signing out. Thank you again for joining Emily Rowell and her guests on the Pro Business Channel. Use the social media links here to share today's show and stay tuned for the next episode of Atlanta Legal Experts Radio. Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space Space. Space. to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped boat neck sweaters. The Container Store Alpha Sale is here with 30% off Alpha and installation. The Container Store, where space comes from. We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.